Hello and welcome once again to Shattered Lives. I'm Kieran Bradley. On our Week in Crime episode today, we will be in part covering issues relating to rape and sexual abuse. So if this is likely to be a particularly difficult listen, then this might be an episode that you want to avoid. As ever, I'm joined by our intrepid Daily Star crime correspondent, Paul Healy. Paul, how you doing? Not too bad, Kieran. How are you? Good, mate. I'm trying to come up with new adjectives for you each time, uh, you know, keep varied up. Yeah, I I need to go back to school, really, for half the words that come out of your mouth. I'm like, what the hell does that... I think it's a compliment to her. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thankfully he doesn't have the thesaurus in front of him. He doesn't know what I'm really saying. You have had uh, a bit of a day of it today. You were down in Tipperary. Um, this is where we're going to be starting our Week in Crime podcast today. Why don't you just give us a sense of what you were down there for and what you were covering? Yeah, well, this is a classic Irish Daily Star story really to be honest where we are contacted by members of the public who are disgruntled about the presence of a paedophile in their area um it's a funny one it's a tough one to cover in a sense because uh, we'll get to this I, i suppose it's worth speaking about this more broadly but um obviously look paedophiles um have to live somewhere so i'll come back to that but um just this particular case uh, is is a, a a abuser by the name of John Carvin. He's fifty three years of age, originally from the Swords area in North Dublin, and he sexually abused his brother's stepdaughter um, back when she was seven years old. So in the early two thousands, and in the year two thousand and fourteen, uh, he was convicted for that and got a fully suspended sentence actually for it. Um, So there was a lot of outrage at the time over his particular uh, treatment that he didn't go uh, to prison effectively. Um, And his victim, she she waived her anonymity so that he could be named. Um, Her name is Stephanie and uh, she she, Stephanie Phoenix is her name. She very bravely waived her anonymity at the time. Um, since then, he's been moved about numerous times, and there have been stories now going back to twenty fourteen when he was moved quite a bit because uh, of where he was, so in proximity to a crash or a school, or um, he was also moved in proximity to his victim at one point. Um, so a lot of outrage over that. Uh, but we were contacted during the week uh, by a concerned member of the public who said that he was now living in the Boris and Ossery area and uh very close to a school and they were outraged that he was there um that that he had been housed in council housing and they wanted him gone um but they made a complaint and actually he was moved um in the later stage of this week to templemore uh where he now lives opposite the garda college directly opposite the garda college um which you know is is extraordinary but anyway um I, I I was wary initially about then going down because he, he'd been moved, you know, so kind of problem solved in a sense. But a whole new uh, furore has already arisen in the last five days where there was a protest last night and there is a protest organized this evening. By the time this podcast comes out, it'll probably be in full swing. Uh, there are residents uh, all around that area who have agreed to meet up and protest outside this particular house they don't want him there they don't believe that he's entitled to be there and the kind of sense that i get from them is uh it's a mix of things it's either 
anger because obviously he's a paedophile but there's also just you know in a in a housing crisis that we're in where people are struggling to actually be able to find a home and purchase a home um that someone like this is being given a free house effectively put i don't know the full circumstances but that he was moved into that house uh himself and his wife okay um i mean obviously there's a there's a lot to unpick there in terms of you covering it and you going down there and obviously there being a sense that this, you know, the genie's already out of the bottle, that there are protests planned and happening, etc. What was the scene like when you got down to the area from a from a journalist's point of view? Were you kind of spotted or, you know, how does that go? Um, well, on these things, you know, we were we were trying to approach Carvin and to be able to photograph him and expose that he's there and speak to him and see what he has to say for himself. Then afterwards, I would speak to locals about their concerns. But whilst trying to stake out a person like that, uh, you hide in your car, well, hide in your car, but you're in your car with a, with a photographer um, and very much trying to just not make your presence known, so to speak. The house is not one that's easy to stake out until it's on the corner of a road and the door is not immediately visible. You're waiting for him to come out into a public place to photograph him. That's the ideal scenario when we do these types of jobs. Um, you prefer not to have to go and knock on the door straight away because you never know um, what kind of greeting you're going to get. Um, you're not necessarily going to get a photo and you're also not necessarily going to get the person you want answering the door. And and so that's why we give it a bit of time. We sat there, but uh, eventually, you know, it was obvious to some locals. Uh, we stood out, um, as is always the case. You might have heard Mick say it here before in the pod, and it's true uh, that you do get spotted. Um, uh, you, you know, you can't really hide yourself for too long. So look, the difference is with a paedophile. You know, it's amazing because with other stories that we've covered, you know, people do get quite aggressive sometimes and say you're not welcome here. Get out of here. Uh, when it comes to a, a paedophile, it just seems everybody just sort of kind of nearly teams up with you. So, <laughs> we were kind of getting offers for of cups of tea and would you like to come into the house and uh, even a house next door um, to uh, Carvin. Yeah, we, we didn't want to blow our cover. Um, so, you know, we were being cautious at the same time. Okay, and then obviously once you're down there, you have a job to do and you, you're trying to get a story. This will be out, by the way, in, in tomorrow's Irish Daily Star and uh, the Irish Mirror online. Who did you speak to? What did you get? How did you feel it went? We spoke to the neighbours, uh, the next door neighbours and various others. Um, some of them angrier than others, as, as I said. Uh, some said that they felt that uh, his presence in the area where there's schools and crashes and he was walking in the local park apparently yesterday and there was a bit of a confrontation with locals there. Uh, so once uh, one sense of it is that we don't want him around our children the other sense is you know he's getting this this free house and it's not fair um but you know because of the tensions there and the increased public interest start more people started driving around coming around standing outside the house and it was just getting all out of control so i just went up and knocked on the door because we would we'd, we'd well and truly been spotted by that point um, I saw him inside, he wouldn't come out, he was just sort of kind of sitting there in the kitchen, uh, wouldn't come to the door, and uh, a lady answered the door, she identified herself as being uh, his wife, and uh, you know, she was courteous and spoke to me, uh, quite nervous, she said um, that she was scared, uh, 
she she I, I asked him about I asked her about her husband and would he talk to me. She went in and came back out and said, No, look, uh he wants to be left alone. Um he's scared, he has a heart problem and I don't want him dying on me. Um she spoke about the protesters outside and said they're after frightening the shite out of me. Um I just insisted that uh, she and her husband have to live somewhere and that they want to get on with their lives and they are quite frightened by the local presence. Um, following this, we left, uh, but I understand that the guards had come out to the house um, because of the increased public presence. It would be interesting to see how the protest goes. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose this turns us on to the wider topic of, you know, what do you do in these situations? I mean, in one sense... It's important for us to highlight, you know, this readers contact us and we weigh the stories up and we highlight them. In one sense, I thought it was a news story because obviously a, a, a Ferrari had started in the community and, and people were not happy and they wanted this highlighted and they don't want them there. So though their, their concerns are legitimate. But on the other hand, um, it, it's a difficult one in terms of like, he's just going to be moved somewhere else, you know, and maybe I wonder what you think about that issue in general yourself. I'd be curious about your perspective on that. Just what you think about, you know, when, I, when is enough enough, I suppose, or like when, or, or maybe, maybe you think fuck them, they're, they're pedophiles and they, you know, whatever. I, I, I feel, I feel weird about it even covering it. I'm, I'm saying it's a story and I understand why we did it, but in, in the issue more generally, I just wonder like, you know what? We're, we're, are we going to keep highlighting everywhere they go, all over the country? Do you know what I mean? It's it's a tough one to manage. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's any news story uh, more affecting to the people who read it than anything to do with child sexual abuse or or whatever it may be. And your natural response is absolute revulsion. But the reality is that, particularly after someone is convicted, they you know the the law has judged that they have served their time. And, you know, if there's any sense of a rehabilitative like side to the law, then they should be given some space to try and carve out a, a, a form of life for themselves, I suppose, that is, is not going to be a danger to anyone else. Now, that might be a bit, you know, uh, rose-tinted. But, but what did strike me there, actually, was, you know, he spoke to his wife and Lord knows what that woman has been through. I mean, it, you always see on these programs like 24 Hours in Police Custody or whatever, these kind of raids on homes and the poor, unsuspecting family having no idea. And now some people, I suppose, have these kind of moral judgments about the family members. It's it's nonsense. Like this comes, I'm sure, as uh, as much a surprise to them as anyone else. So she has a right to life. She's She's gone to um, through an enormous amount of trauma. And I think, you know... There's also a mob mentality element that has been exacerbated specifically by social media, I think, too. Like, you see these kind of paedophile hunter groups, etc. And I'm sure in some sense the, the guards are reasonably happy to get kind of information, but at the same time very wary of people taking the law into their own hands. So, look, I, I, you know, I, I don't think either of us have any any answers on this. But the, the mind did go back to actually to that Lou Through documentary did about the kind of mega prison um, in, in the States for child sexual offenders. And, you know, there's a point where, you know, they're kind of left in limbo. There's nowhere for them to go. But I, I just, just on that point, actually, because I remember around 2000, there was um, in the UK, the murder of Sarah Payne, which happened in the summer. There was a, a spate of these horrific child murders, actually, in kind of early 2000s. Um, 
prompted uh, I remember the Sun doing a campaign around something called Sarah's Law that they were trying to bring in uh, you know they were they were effectively trying to get a law similar to what happens in the states whereby if a sex offender moves into your area then you have to be notified of it now of course the logic behind that is is perfectly fair and i'm sure it's paramount in the guardi and um legal systems mindset that you don't put people who are dangerous to children around children but i mean what what is the situation here is it, you know do people are people notified? Are they told that someone is moving into the area or is it just the room, middle and island being what it is that the, the word goes around quickly enough? No, well, it, there, there, it, there have been calls uh, to, to enact exactly that, what you've just said here in Ireland. But the system is, no, you're not notified. No one's told. Um, there had been calls for, and it might be a good segue into the next thing we're going to talk about because uh, Fiona Doyle uh, is an incredible advocate for victims and she has often campaigned for exactly that for victims in particular to be notified as to where their abusers etc uh with the community around them are where they are you know so uh, there have been calls for exactly that but it's just not there it's not enshrined in the law i remember i think helen mcintyre recently was um floating the idea of domestic violence uh victims being able to possibly find out where their abusers are or if not not where they're living sorry to find out what their past criminal history was there was talk of that but again they're not um they're not enacted so yeah there's just nothing like that here so it really comes down to word of mouth which is why i think we're getting stories like this because once it, it, this is spread around like wildfire now that caravan is in the area so it's just sparked mass outrage because it's like oh there's this pedophile living amongst us you know there's probably a pedophile living amongst every single one of us you know that's the reality of the situation they have to live somewhere so i'm, I'm not trying to downplay the 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 p- people's emotions on this they have every right to be angered and, and that's why it's a legitimate story uh but for me personally i, I think you're probably thinking along the same wavelengths it's like I wonder in the long term how much uh, is there to be gained by constantly. It, it, it every every case is different, but by by constantly highlighting every single place that they move. I mean they're going to have to be moved somewhere. So it's it's just do they do they move them according to the best intentions? For, you know, like for example, this guy's been moved right next to a Garda college, right? So he, there's a huge Garda presence around. Um, so in a sense, is he in the best place that they could possibly put him? You know, okay, pre- previously you might have had an argument, okay, he was right outside of school. Okay, so maybe this is a better location. So it, if those kind of considerations are put in place, then I would then I would nearly say we might have to grin and bear it in some cases because they have to be put somewhere. But it's a long way of saying, when did answer is answering your question, that there just isn't anything on that, that, that like that here, but there have been calls for it, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to read more about the John Carvin story, particularly, that'll be on the Irish Daily Star, sorry, in the Irish Daily Star and on irishmirror.ie tomorrow. Uh, As you say, this might be a good time to segue into uh, another story from this week. Uh, Fiona Doyle, you might just bring us up to date with that. Yeah, Fiona Doyle, I've had her on the pod here before. She's an incredible um, person. I, I, I think I was saying to you just off air that of all the people that I've had the pleasure of interviewing, I, like she often stands out in my mind as, as not that I rank anybody, but I just think she's one of the most I- incredible people that I've ever met. I think she's just an incredible survivor. 
uh, and an advocate for so many and a very strong woman like in spite of going through um one of the worst childhoods anyone could imagine um she was abused by her father patrick o'brien uh from a very early age uh, in the 1980s and um stayed when they lived in bray and uh i will won't go into too much detail but people will remember the case and it's infamy um in particular in relation to one of the rapes that she suffered at the hands of her father being uh, in a graveyard uh, on the day of her first Holy Communion. Um, so you're talking about, it's, it's depraved enough, but it's an extra level of depravity. Uh, it's it's one of those cases that garnered huge media attention at the time um, because of that, but also just because of the person that Fiona is, an incredibly outspoken uh, survivor. And when she did get justice and her father was jailed for I'm going to say 12 and a half years, uh, she felt that she got justice for that. Then I think the sentence was reduced after a period of time and he was released there from Arbor Hill Prison in 2019 at the age of 81. Um, so he's a, he's a dirty old bollocks, to be honest, because he, and, and, and he has said that himself. Um, in a way, it, he will express remorse, uh, but also then will downplay what he did um like we we doorstepped him at the time in 2019 when he was released and he did uh say i'm very very sorry for what i did but he takes particular issue with the word rape and he says that he didn't rape his daughter he, he actually pleaded guilty to rape uh so he pleaded guilty to the offense but he refuses to this day to uh acknowledge that that's what he actually did um but the development um the reason why we're talking about this case again is because I did an interview there with Fiona uh, yesterday where she told me that she has confronted her father this year. Um, so this is a, a new confrontation between her and her father in a nursing home. Look, I mean, it, it's very difficult really to even respond to that in the sense that it's, it's, it's a lot to process. But I suppose, you know, she has now been forced to process a lot of this for a long time. And I was just trying to put myself as far as you possibly can in the mindset of walking into that nursing home and knowing who you're going to meet and what he has done and frankly the mealy-mouthed uh, declarations of apology or whatever we're going to play a clip now of of her describing some of that um which she's consented for us to to play just a clip of what she said to me i decided that it's time to see him and uh kind of put make peace for him as well in a sense mm -hmm. because I think I always feel that um, resentment and, and anger and hate and all that breeds sickness and I just thought life would be better if I just had made it peace a peace and put it to bed mm. so I, I knew where he was. I've always known where he was. And right, um, right. I decided uh, to turn up at the nursing home. And um, there was, there was a gates with a code on it and somebody was coming out the gate. So I just kind of slipped in. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and then I went in the door 
and there was a coded door as well and a nurse saw me and she let me in and I asked for my father and she asked who I was and I just said his daughter and I was brought up to his room and uh, he was quite shocked when I walked in very shocked to see me and he's on oxygen he's actually at end of life care oh god right okay and um, he took his mask off. He was on an oxygen mask and he took the mask off. And I just said to him, I kind of put him at, at ease a bit because I just said to him, I'm not here for trouble. I'm not here to fight. I'm here to um, kind of just make peace about it all. Okay. And <clears throat> he then, he, he agreed to me sitting with him. Mm. And he did. He did apologise. He says, "I'm very sorry for for everything." Right. When was this, um, Fiona? Sorry, when was this? I think it was March. Okay, so earlier this year. Yeah. Right. And was it important for you to do that, I suppose? Was it to, to a sense of closure, was it? Or what was the purpose behind yeah, it in your mind? Yeah. Well, the purpose is, was to kind of, uh, you know, tell him, which I had before told him that I needed, I know I need to go to his funeral. I need to um, see him, see the end of him. Mm-hmm. And I needed him, again, I needed to kind of uh, reinforce that to him and, and tell him again that, that that's what I need. I need to, to uh, see the end of all this. Mm. But, I, you know, I also had an ulterior motive to going to see him. I wanted to question him on his, uh, what he remembered in regards to the guards come and speak to him back in the 1990s about my first complaint when I made a complaint first of all oh right this is to do with your 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 legal case is it you wanted yeah. to get okay yeah. very good and did he so, back did um, he back up with you what you believe to be true what you know to be true yeah yeah he because I, I said to him oh, you know I just said to him that I'm that I'm being called a liar Mm. more or less mm. because the guards were denying I ever spoke to them right and he said, he said to me well if they're calling you a liar they're calling me a liar right and I said you know you do remember them coming and he says yes I do right so um, now he can't remember names or details but he was quite clear in remembering that they did come and speak to him mm. and uh, we talked about that for a while and then we talked about I said to him about if, if he dies if he was on about he was going on about the fact that um, he doesn't see anybody right uh, he was kind of more or less saying I've served my time so he kind of was implying that he should be forgiven by everybody. <laughs> right. Um, I, I just said to him, like, it doesn't work that way. So, so, yeah, you just, you heard Fiona there in her own words describing, you know, that conversation she had with her dad. But uh, 
you know, she, she, we won't hear the whole clip there, but she, she does describe like how, uh, he did apologize. Um, but again, as I said, uh, did, didn't really want to discuss the terminology of it. So that's, he's still the same way. She also told us that he was dying in hospital, that he is in uh, a form of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, there's nothing more that, that the doctors can can do for him. You know, he, he is he is in uh, in in end of life care, end of life care, um, at the age of eighty four. But she felt that that was the closure that she needed. Um, she also went in um because she she admits she has an ulterior motive, which which is she's taking a case against the state, which will is an incredibly uh lengthy ongoing process. It hasn't even got before the courts yet, but she's suing uh the guards, the HSE. And a number of other state bodies because she alleges that she was failed as a child and when she was younger you know she made a complaint in the 1990s although the guards say that they have no record of this complaint um and she wanted her father to back up uh, her recollection that the guards came and that they spoke to him at the time and he allegedly told her that he does remember that and she's not a liar and effectively backed up uh, what she what she is saying um, you know that she made this complaint all the way back in the 90s and, and nothing was done at the time uh, it didn't go anywhere there are also other allegations about how the health services failed her but it's an ongoing process and she's she's just left in this complete limbo because she hasn't uh, been able to progress the case because the HSE have not responded to date so um, I just want to also mention uh, and this is again testament to how incredible she is. She she was fighting a, a secret health battle of her own, in which she's thankfully come through a bit, uh, where she was suffering from sepsis uh, and spent five months in hospital, um, and believed that she was going to die. And she told us how uh, she rang her husband and said goodbye to her uh, kids and to him, and fully believed that she was going to die. She's now come out of this on the other side of it and is ready to take on her case again and. Like you're talking, I mean, it's been some time now. It's been 10, 12 years since she got justice. Um, and here she is now uh, taking on another battle. And, and for her, it's just about, you know, proving that uh, she feels she was failed by the system. Um, I mean, she did ultimately get justice from the system, but, but many years prior, complaints were made and she feels they weren't taken up upon. And uh, in fact, she she, there, she was raped by another individual who, who I can't name. Um, she feels that that attack probably would never have happened uh, had complaints that she made um, at the time been taken more seriously because she would have been moved out of the house where she lived with her father. And she feels that that uh, rape would not have been facilitated. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, God, she just lived the most incredible life. I mean, I mean in just in terms of, She's gone, suffered through so much hardships, but she's an incredibly strong person. You'll even hear it just from that clip we played. Um, a, a real survivor of, of abuse and, and has become an advocate for many others. Um, as we mentioned, just that she spoke about, you know, enact, enacting that law where we could know where sex offenders live or where victims could know where they live. Um, she's often spoke out about that and many other things. Um, and she's listened to, you know, because I think she's very powerful on these things. I mean, she, she speaks at, at it with authority and with experience, you know? Yeah. It, it always seems particularly kind of perverse when people who come out and say, this is what happened to me and, um, are a beacon to people who've gone through similar experiences to then on the other hand, be 
minimized i suppose in in some sense by by the system too so we wish her all the very best with with that case now we've covered two um particularly uh traumatic topics there um now thankfully we're coming to something slightly lighter so um for those of you who might be wondering why this is coming out on a friday it's actually because Paul spent the entire of one of the days at a Bank of Ireland cash machine trying to get out. I think 50 grand, was it? Is that right? <laughs> okay, maybe it was less than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, yeah, obviously this has dominated the news this week with the uh, with the ATMs. Uh, you might just bring us up to up to speed with what's going on now. Well, I, I want to ask you about it first because I, I noticed that, I mean, when I once I kind of realized that this, like, this was a big story um, was when I saw ABC News in the US um, putting it up on Twitter and the video and I was embarrassed for our country but I just wonder like from you being over there in New York obviously did you see local coverage of it there and what did you make of it? Uh, bits and bobs really but to be honest the majority of it was coming from memes on Twitter <laughs> there were many yeah one of yeah. Enoch Burke uh, trying to get a few quid out um, yeah I mean look, primarily it was coming through uh, through people who were sending me stuff but um, yeah so I I I think in the in the heat of actually trying to do the job over here, I, I kind of missed the the majority of what what caused it. Do we have an, uh, a reasonable sense of that now? I presume that's just my ignorance. No, well, this is this, this was an IT issue. Uh, Bank of Ireland say, um, and really, I, I my interest in this was looking at the Garda element of it. You know, as a I suppose as a crime reporter, I was trying to see what the crime was or what the what what the involvement of the guards were in particular. So speaking at it from that particular angle, what interested me was the images and the videos of Gardaí uh, appearing to block ATMs, which caused a bit of a kerfuffle on social media in particular, because there's this perception, you know, why are the guards stopping us from getting our money? And also there was a perception of, you know, they're supposed to have no resources. They're nowhere to be seen when it comes to these incidents of violence in the city. Yet here they are defending the banks, you know, and it just wasn't a good look. Uh, so I was curious about who gave the order, how did it happen, like you know, and where and how how many places did it happen? And it was very difficult to get answers at first because um, I think the guards were initially the management side of you. I mean, uh, were a bit defensive about this, um, whereas sources on the ground were more embarrassed about it. Some of them, now not all of them. Some of them felt like you know. People are just doing their jobs like that, they did. And, and that's true, they were. But some guards, I felt, are embarrassed by the optics of it, you know. And so what I was hearing was that uh, they were, you know, and, and they have to do what they're told, uh, that there were orders coming directly from uh, the control room, i.e. local management, uh, to go out and to man these ATMs or go out to these ATMs because of the crowds that were there. Whereas the other narrative that was coming from the management side of things was nobody was ordered to do, to do anything. So it was very unclear, you know, as to what happened here. But I my understanding of it now is that there are divisional control rooms. And from that, somebody somewhere made a decision and the guards were told on the official CAD system to go out and attend these scenes what I was being told from the more management side of you was that maybe it wasn't as 
black and white as go out and stand in front of an ATM. It was more, you know, people are gathering outside ATMs, go and use your discretion to, uh, as a guard, to to uh, do what you have to do in order to prevent a public order incident. So a public order incident is, you know, violence breaking out, uh, panic, you know, and that, and, that, and that was happening at some ATMs across the country where uh, people were apparently panicking that the ATM was going to run out of money and they wanted to get their money and so there was crowds gathering you saw some of the videos yourself probably of just people just like you know going crazy uh, and so Agarda actually does have the right to you know quote unquote clear an area uh, for public order reasons which is what they did um so they were just doing their their job in that sense in that they were trying to prevent crime from being committed uh, and and that's what the what they were doing but I would say many guards privately would say to you that they didn't that the optics of it it just it just didn't look good and some of them are embarrassed by it, um. But it, this isn't to blame the guards on the ground. In, in one sense, uh, you know, uh, decisions were made at a higher level uh, about sending them out there in the first place. And in some cases, it was warranted. I think there was one case where there was an assault issue going on, and uh, the other the other um. A reason that was given where there were forty over forty phone calls made from members of the public who were supposedly concerned about the crowds gathering at the ATMs and the guards were responding directly to that. And then when it comes to the resources question, I was told, well, if anything, this proves that there are resources because the guards that went and attended the ATMs were already on duty. Therefore, you know, they were there, they were in the area, so there's no resources problem. That's one way of looking at it. And another way of looking at it, you could sort of say, well, they could have been doing something else rather than standing in front of, in front of an ATM. But uh, I just thought it was interesting that there was an initial sort of shift of like blame. No one really wanted to kind of come out and say who made the call because I think everybody sort of kind of realized oh, it just doesn't look good. But I think in the moment, it's like someone panicked and went, oh, Jesus, like there's, there's just crowds gathering at ATMs. We need to get guards out there now. And that's what happened. That's what happened, I think. No, like, I, I think it strikes in something in the, the kind of social memory, really, of uh, of the crash, you know, and the, the kind of other run on the banks that were happening ar around that time. And it kind of feels like the sort of, if you want to look at it this way, the instruments of the state or whatever are there to kind of protect the banks. I don't think that's the case. I just think the reality is, look, everyone likes a bit of free dosh, I'm sure. But the reality is it's it, it's it's not free. It's going to cost you at some stage down the line. And if it's bringing out the kind of worst sides of human nature where people are scrabbling over money that effectively isn't theirs, um, then, you know, the, the guards have a, a right to, to respond to that. But yeah, you're right. The optics of it are, are terrible. Um, so in terms of resourcing, that brings us neatly on to what we were discussing earlier in the week about the assaults uh, in Dublin. Uh, that have made the news. I believe you have an update on that, Paul. Yeah, well, it was frustrating to me in covering all of these assault incidents that we didn't have, I suppose, stats to hand as to, because there's been this perception now that uh, assaults are on the increase in Dublin city centre, given the recent attack on Stephen Termini, the US tourist, and the incident in Temple Bar, and the incident outside the Guinness Storehouse, and all these incidents that have been videoed over the last couple of weeks. And I just wanted to be able to say definitively, okay, you know, there's a, there's an increase in this level of crime or not. I haven't quite fully got the answer for you here in terms of I don't have statistics right up to this week in August, but I was able to, um, thanks to the Garda Press Office, 
sometimes thank you to the Garda Press Office, just want to say that, uh, for facilitating us. Uh, by uh, we, we asked for um, the latest figures and we got figures for the last seven months, so from January to July, for the Dublin metropolitan region. So that's all of Dublin um, assaults in public places. And there have this year, for the first seven months of this year, been 2,353 assaults, which is a lot of assaults, to be fair. Uh, but to contextualize that, it is less than last year uh, so far, if you're counting seven months. Uh, it's 73 less than last year. So there were more last year, in the first seven months. Um, in terms of 2020 and 2021, uh, there were significantly less than there are now. But the guards have pointed out to me that there are obvious reasons for that. The pandemic uh, has a role to play in that. Um, I just want to give you the figures for that. Yeah, so 1,909 assaults in 2020 and 1,868 in 2021. So that's how much less there were, less people on the streets, I guess. Um, and then for 2019, uh, there were actually 2,535. So, um, you know, that's that's 182 more than this year. Um, so that basically shows they were higher in 2019, lower in the COVID years, uh, slightly more last year than this year. That's That gives you the context. But... Kind of averaging out at about 2,000, over 2,000 assaults uh, in the city centre in Dublin's, uh, across Dublin, sorry, across the Dublin area. Um, so that that shows you that there hasn't been a major spike anyway since July. Um, so there is a bit of an anecdotal thing going on. Um, but, but also those figures aren't low. They're not low either. You know, I mean, over 2,000 public assaults uh, is significant and also there are figures in relation to uh, assaults and um, uh, resisting arrest and obstruction incidents against uh, Gardaí there were 151 in 2020 now maybe the context of that you know there were a lot of very high tension moments in 2020 uh, between guards and people who didn't want to obey the COVID restrictions. So that's actually the highest figure in those in that four year period. Only 105 in 2019, 112 in 2021, uh, 127 so far this year. Uh, so that's that's on the increase. The, the, there's a few things that spring to mind. I, I realise you you most likely won't have the stats around this, but I mean. It's like we were talking about resourcing earlier. To arrest someone, you need the guards to be there and you need the guards to respond. And guards are doing their best. I have absolutely no doubt about that. But if you have dwindling numbers and dwindling resources, then, you know, you get a little bit of a plateau. And by the way, you know, the stats, the stats, that's fine. As well, I think the there is a an anecdotal admittedly but a palpable sense of intimidation around the city center uh, that doesn't get reported and you know you know it, it's it's a feeling that people have and i think at this point particularly among friends and family who you know generally speaking can get themselves in trouble etc but uh, there's a feeling that town is is a good bit sketchier uh, than it was but again oh, yeah. we'll have to 
we'll have to go with the stats and of course some cases are more high profile than others but anyway um all right well that's your lot for this week um paul's gonna go and um get himself a well-deserved pint after a, a pretty busy day and I am going to go and do a well-deserved day of work, which <laughs> is rather frustrating. Two different time zones. It's mad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go drown, drown myself in some beer now. So listen, thanks very much. No worries. Well, I'm already drunk anyway, so that helps. Um, <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Have a, have a great week here, mate. And um, thank you all for listening. Um, we'll be back with you next week. Take care. Thank you.